Morning, Mercy House. How are we? Pretty good? Filled in a little bit since uh, we started. That's great. I'm going to tuck this down. Well, I want to welcome you. If this is your first time or you've been away for a little bit, we're really glad and excited that you are here. Uh, This is actually the first week that Pastor Robert and Melanie are not here. Um, They're away on their five-month sabbatical, which means that they're probably listening into this podcast right now. So, Robert, Melanie, we're meeting. Everybody's here. It's going really well. You guys can rest assured. Um, But seriously, there are a few things I I do want to say as we move into this next season as a church. Um, The elders and the staff have been preparing for this for for a really long time, for Robert and Melanie um, to take this much needed and and this deserved time off. Um, They didn't just up and go. This this wasn't something that we had to figure out overnight last night. Um, And you might be wondering a few things. I just want to clear some things up. So one of the questions that we hear a lot is like, well, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be running the show? Jesus is going to continue to be the head of this church. Um, he, he, he was the head last week, he's the head this week, and he's going to be the head next week. And you might interpret that as a snarky comment, but really it, it's not. Um, it's important for us as a church, especially in moments um, of significant visual change like this, to remember that the lordship of Mercy House is theologically, conceptually, and practically belonging to Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is Lord over Mercy House. This is not a coffee mug phrase. Um, this is something that we b- firmly believe in, um, and it's how we operate as a church. That being said, we remain an elder-led church where Robert serves as one of four. So the other three, Chris, Steve, um, and Dan, are going to continue to lead. Um, and I'll be doing some of the preaching along with Chris Gow um, and Austin Kopak, who um, are, are, neither of them are new to the pulpit. You've probably seen them preach before. They've had lots of training, lots of experience in rightly handling the Word of God. They're going to do an awesome job preaching. Um, there's going to be some others who will also hop into the lineup as well. Um, and, and the staff are going to continue grinding away and serving the church. And what I'm trying to say is we're not scaling back at all. If anything, we're actually doing a lot of new things that we've never done before. Uh, We're not going into hibernation mode as Robert and Melanie are away. We're not hitting the cruise control button waiting for them to come back. The kingdom is going to advance here in the valley, Lord willing, um, and we're just really excited as staff, as elders, as a church um, to move into this next season for Mercy House. So I want to make that very clear. Uh, Much of this was articulated a couple weeks ago at the members summit, uh, membership summit, But if you do have questions, if you have concerns, if you just want to talk to somebody about some of the things that are happening, feel free to reach out to any of the elders. They're going to be standing back there after the service. Um, You can talk to any of the staff as well, um, and we'd be glad to kind of answer any questions that you might have. All right, so what are we doing? Well, what's going on? What's new? Well, uh, as I mentioned, my name is Tommy Moore. Uh, I'm a full-time staff member here at Mercy House. Uh, I'll be doing some of the preaching over the next five months, but that really is not going to be my primary focus. Um, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm full-time staff here for Mercy House, and my job is specifically focused on spiritual formation uh, for you as individuals, uh, for us as a church as a whole, uh, for discipleship that's happening inside the church, and also for the men's ministry. And the places really where we can go deeper and grow more rich and more vibrant uh, relationships both with Christ, but also experience the wholesome, fruitful fellowship with one another. That's my area of focus over the next year. 
Um, that's what I'm going to be spending the bulk of my time investing in. And I'm incredibly thankful for it because it's something that I, I'm personally very passionate and excited about. So you'll be, uh, you'll be seeing some different things being implemented um, over the next few months to kind of help facilitate these things to happen here at Mercy House. But before we really go into the systems and structures, because I can talk systems and structures all day. That's like where my brain exists. I love charting stuff out and working with whiteboards. Like that's where my brain thrives. But we need to understand well, what's actually leading into those systems and structures. What, what's the driving force behind them? So I'm going to be walking us through a four-week sermon series on Luke chapters 9 and 10, uh, which really lay out the groundwork, groundwork for what it means to grow as a disciple, grow as a disciple of Christ. When we talk about spiritual formation and what it means to mature spiritually, Scripture is really where we want to look at first and foremost. It's in God's word where he's going to reveal to us how to follow him, um, how to invest our time, how to invest our talents, how to invest our treasure, really how to live our lives as followers of him. And ultimately, that's, that's what I hope to answer. So in chapters 9 and 10 of Luke, um, they're really going to point us in that right direction to help us understand that. So let me pray for us, and I'm going to dive right into the text. God, we thank you for uh, this morning where we get to sit together and read your word um, we don't have to worry about being persecuted or um, fear for our lives or be in danger, God. Thank you for the safety that we have this morning to read your word and to worship you. I pray that you would um, help illuminate this text, God. I pray that you would come alive in it, um, that people would receive it, Lord, that you would change hearts and allow us to see what it looks like to grow um, as believers. We thank you that you, um, yeah, that, that you have a mission that you invite us to. I pray that you would continue to make that clear for each of us um, in terms of our individual callings, Lord. And we love you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in asking what does it look like to be a disciple, um, the best place to look is going to be at the very first disciples, the very first disciples. And not because they were the first ones to kind of figure something new out, but really because they were the first one to receive direct discipleship from Jesus Christ himself, right? So pretty good, credible source what it means to be a disciple. Jesus would spend about three years pouring into a small group of men um, to prepare and equip them for their ministry after he would leave. So in Luke 9, we get this snapshot into a really exciting, uh, densely packed time for his disciples. In our sermon series, it's called Jesus University. Um, and as the name implies, we want to sit in on some of the teachings of Jesus. So what were the lessons that he was instilling in his disciples? What were they learning about for what it would mean to follow him. So let's read and find out. So starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And one of the first things that Jesus does with his disciples is that he mobilizes them. He mobilizes them. He shows his disciples that this is not going to be a spectator sport where, where you're sitting on the sideline and I'm doing the work and you're watching me do it. There is some watching going on. Uh, but he, he, he is going to be inviting them into it. And if we're reading this for the first time, it should really shock us. 
It should shock us because of how quickly Jesus throws his disciples into the work of preaching and healing people. So to be a doctor, we've got some doctors here this morning, to be a doctor today uh, and to be an actual credible source of healing, you really have to finish your undergraduate degree, which takes about four years, plus or minus, right? Then you have to pass the MCAT, you have to apply for med school. Uh, Once you get in, you have to finish another four years of full-time schooling. Then you have to complete at least three years of a residency, depending on what your specialization is. Then you have to pass your medical licensing exams, get your board certifications. Then you can start practicing in healing people. But at Jesus University, you can start healing people in your first year of discipleship, right? Look, though, honestly, Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4. So that's when he starts his ministry. He calls his first disciples in Luke chapter 5. He names the 12 apostles in chapter 6. And three chapters later, we're we're still in chapter 9, he's sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's my kind of schooling, right? Just like enroll and then you go. You're ready to go. For those of us who might not think that we're prepared enough or not equipped enough um, to do this work, how do you think the disciples felt, right? This is before seminary degrees. This is before InterVarsity Press and all the books that they crank out. This is before the Desiring God blog. This is before the Bible app that gives you daily devotionals and, and the books upon books and upon books that we have to be equipped for ministry that we can read. The disciples were sent out within a year, probably likely months after they met Jesus. Granted, they had Jesus, right? Let's, let's not overlook that. They had Jesus in the flesh with them. But I think Jesus sends them out so early to establish some of the teaching points about the culture of discipleship that they were about to participate in. The first lesson being simply, uh, you will be sent to proclaim and heal. There's really no dodging this. Jesus always calls his disciples to action. He's kind of like that scary teacher, right, who randomly calls on you in class to answer or participate, regardless of whether or not you did your homework or you're prepared for class, right? So when you're around Jesus, be prepared to be called on to do crazy stuff. That's one of the things that he's establishing here. What we see here in the Gospels is not just an instructional aspect to Jesus' relationship to his disciples, but a practical aspect as well. And in this, we see a glimpse into Jesus' teaching style and his mission. He's a hands-on teacher with a mission to mobilize his disciples for ministry. He's preparing them from day one to go. And at the core of this is the reality that, that Jesus himself has been sent to bring good news and to heal. That's his mission. He's not, he's not tasking his disciples with something that he himself doesn't do or outsourcing kind of the hard parts to the peons over there. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. So whatever Jesus is called to do, he's sending his disciples to go do that. That means that what Jesus demonstrates with his actions, what what he communicates with his life, is not just something to watch and behold. It's something that is a model for us to emulate ourselves. So we got to remember that as, as we're watching Jesus do these things, he's calling his disciples to do the same exact thing things. So that first lesson, lesson one, is you will be sent to proclaim and heal. Not always to the farthest reaches of the earth, not always in a professional full-time capacity, not always in tandem with being called to sell everything you have and to give to the poor, but to some degree, in various seasons and in different capacities, a disciple of Jesus Christ is called to proclaim the kingdom 
and to heal. Again, Jesus is establishing early on that this is not a spectator sport. And I think part of why he sends out his disciples to do these important tasks is to to establish this as the culture of discipleship. Uh, But also, so they can kind of taste and see the excitement, the joy, and, and, and the urgency in their ministry. They get a taste of that right at the beginning. And what's great, in my opinion, is, is that being sent is not very complicated. Their task is actually quite simple. We see that their objective is to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Two relatively simple tasks, right? Well, what does this mean? So proclaiming the kingdom was relatively simple, right? It, it could be in an open-air setting. It could be in a synagogue or a church setting. Um, it could be on a street corner. It could be in the market. Uh, it could be in a small group of people. It could also even just be one-on-one. But whatever that setting, the message that they brought was essentially uh, one that the king, capital K, king, had arrived. Jesus, the Messiah, is present. Uh, point two, his kingdom is different than what he had, we had first expected different from what we expected. And three, he gathers a kingdom community of those who will repent and believe. Those are the three major points to be communicated. The king has arrived, it's Jesus. The kingdom is different from what we had expected. And God is gathering a kingdom community of those who repent and believe. That's it. Now, at this point, there's no apologetics to defend this proclamation. There's no Roman road or acrostic or doodle drawing to memorize and draw out for somebody. Um, The message was and is simple. And next week, we'll be diving into the implications of this proclamation and the ensuing conversations that inevitably sprout out of it. And, And there are vast implications and conversations that sprout out of this message. But at the core, it's very simple. So consider this, that that the gospel message is simple. The gospel message is simple. Um, Yes, the implications are vast. Yes, maturing in your faith is a lifelong process. Yes, doctrine and apologetics are rich fields of study that can be incredibly fruitful for your growth as a believer. But don't let these larger things, these larger implications overshadow the simplicity of what we are called to do. And what about healing? So this isn't a play on words. The disciples are sent to cure diseases and bring physical, miraculous healing to the sick. We're not talking about delivering cough syrup and some back rubs uh, for people who have some colds. We're talking about supernatural acts of divine power, making crippled people walk again, Um, the blind able to see again, and the leprous with flesh-eating, rotten, bacteria-ridden flesh being made completely new, and having healthy skin again. These are things that we're seeing at the beginning of Luke. In the verses just before this, in chapter, right before chapter 9, um, it, we see Jesus entering the house of a little dead girl. Uh, all the people there are weeping, they're mourning for her, and Jesus says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. The the disciples aren't being sent to tend to the sick. They are being sent to heal the sick. This is some pretty intense stuff that they're called to. But how? How how do they do this? The lesson, too, from Jesus that we see is that you will be empowered. You will be empowered. 
What precedes the sending is a supernatural equipping of the disciples. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Without this supernatural equipping, the disciples would have failed before they even were sent. We were blessed as a family um, to have a new car this past year, and one of the weirder things about it is there's no key. There's no key. You push a button to start the car. And it's been so strange getting used to pushing a button to start a car because I've grown up with the traditional turning of the key, right? When, like in, when you're playing charades, like this is, you turn on the car, right? So the way that it works is like you have this little key fob and you have it in your pocket and when you want to go start your car, you go sit down and it sends a little RF signal to the car letting you know that you have the authority to start the car. So you sit down, push the button and the engine turns on. There's some sort of magical thing going on in there. And, and what I'm trying to communicate is without that little key fob, right, without that little thing saying that you have the authority to be in the car, you could sit there for hours pushing that button and nothing would happen. Hopefully you have the sense to not sit there for hours before realizing that you can't start the car, but you could, theoretically. The idea here is that without the disciples being empowered, being given the authority um, as, as Jesus being the creator, the God, and the ruler of the universe... Right? If they're not given that authority to go do this, uh, their efforts to heal would have been in vain. Would have been in vain. Empowering, this empowering that we see was not done in secret. If it was, then Luke wouldn't have seen it and he wouldn't have written about it. So Jesus calls his disciples to himself and, and this giving of power and authority is, is one that's communicated for them and others around them uh, to see and hear. Well, why? Why would they make this public? Why would Jesus want them to know that they're being given this authority? I think lesson three that we get from this is that um, you will be required to depend on God. It's one of the tenets of being a disciple. You will be required to depend on God. Jesus makes it very clear that their power and authority as they're sent out um, are not in in any special method or any skill that they themselves could manufacture or develop apart from him. Without being empowered, not only would the disciples fail, but they would also kind of run the risk of seeing their, their success or failure in ministry being the result of their own power, their own authority, their, their own general awesomeness in life, if that were the case. So the correct posture of the disciple is one of just constant dependence on Christ. Not just for power and authority to preach and to heal, but in all aspects of life. And in our last sermon series through Judges, we see this theme of dependence on God over and over and over again. That God is constantly reminding Israel of their dependence on Him, their need for Him. And He blesses them when they acknowledge this, when they look to Him for help in moments of distress. And, and even when they don't, Jesus is like, even though you, you don't think that you need me, I'm still going to help you. Um, and He blesses them. But when they act independently from God, um, with their faith in their own power, their own authority, their own ability, um, and, and when God releases his hand from them, things go real bad, real bad. We saw Samson in this lowest of low moments for him, and he goes out to fight some Philistines in his own power, um, not depending on God for strength and power, but just looking into his own awesomeness. We see this in chapter 16, um, verse 20. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as, uh, as in other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Uh-oh. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in prison. It's not a good place to be. I think there is a challenge. it's It's a woe. Woe to us if we find ourselves as disciples operating independently from Christ and drawing from wells of personal skills or talents. Woe to us if, if we're not depending on Christ for power, authority, and grace. That's a dangerous place to be in. And it's a gradual slip when we find ourselves in it. And it's not just the commissioning of power and authority that communicates um, to this necessity of dependence on Christ. Look at the instructions that they're given. In verse 3, he says to them, And take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. I love that last one. Jesus is like, Let's, we're going to keep things real simple. Don't take anything with you. Don't take your wallet. Don't take any snacks with you. Don't even, don't even bring an extra shirt with you. And again, these instructions are, are going to be forcing the disciples to depend on God, not just for authority and power, uh, but also for provision in case the disciples would be tempted to find security in their possessions, right? Which is a crazy concept. No, it's not, right? We do this all the time. My wife, Caitlin, and I, we spent a few weeks backpacking through Vietnam. um, And and during that time, we spent a lot of time before cramming all sorts of little things into our backpacks to survive. Um, We we were traveling relatively light, right? We didn't have any suitcases. We just had a couple of 35-liter backpacks, uh, like your typical camping uh, backpacks. Um, and it was, it was really nerve-wracking. So was it nerve-wracking to be carrying everything that you needed to survive for three weeks in a foreign land on your back? Yes, it was nerve-wracking. Did I feel relatively safe knowing that I had packed at least the essentials? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, would I have broken down in anxiety if our bags were lost and stolen? You betcha. If we lost those bags, I don't know what we would have done. Like, everything we had to survive was in those bags. We find safety and security in things that we need. It's human nature. We feel good when we kind of stockpile a little bit. Uh, We feel safer when there's a cushion in our finances. We feel secure when the right pieces are in the right places. So by taking away these things from the disciples, Jesus is really forcing them to assume the correct posture for growing as a disciple, which is complete and utter dependence on him, not just for power and authority, but for literally every tangible thing that they would need along the way. That's crazy that these disciples were put through this very challenging exercise. And even with dependence on Christ being the foundation for a fruitful, vibrant relationship with God um, that sustains and empowers their ministry of preaching and healing, that doesn't mean that it's a cakewalk doesn't mean that it's a cakewalk. In fact, lesson four that we see in this text is that Jesus, uh, for Jesus' disciples, is that you will be rejected. You will be rejected. You will face rejection. There's really no sugarcoating this one. Jesus makes it very, very clear. Look at verse five. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Being a disciple has nothing to do with batting a thousand. Um, in the context of reaching people with the gospel, you will face rejection, period. Jesus isn't saying, if 
for some reason, you encounter a stray meanie who doesn't really want to hear what you're saying. Uh, No, he's saying when you find people who don't want to have anything to do with you or your message, then move on. Move on. I think this communicates a few things. One, uh, rejection, or maybe the fear of rejection, is really a part of the process of being sent. Uh, but it, it shouldn't cripple a disciple in their ministry or, or prevent us from initiating it in the first place. And the shaking off of dust is this, t- is this tangible routine or ritual, if you will, uh, to help them literally move on um, not to, and, and not to take much stock in what had just happened. It doesn't mean that facing rejection is easy. It, it can be really hard. But Jesus' practical instructions are literally move on, keep moving. Keep moving forward. The image of shaking dust off their feet is, is really significant for them because it would normally be used in the, in the context of Jewish people shaking the dust off of their feet after leaving a Gentile city. So it would signify that they had moved on, having nothing to do with those non-Jewish cities by literally leaving everything behind them, the dust off their feet um, and, and on their shoes as they left that non-Jewish city. But what Jesus is calling them to do is to have this attitude not just toward Gentile, non-Jewish cities um, like they were used to, but treating their Jewish cities, their home cities, their own cities that rejected the gospel in the same way that they had treated these non-Jewish ones. And this is a radical notion as Jesus begins kind of leveling the playing field and extending the good news of salvation beyond the nation of Israel. The second thing I think that this communicates is that our role of proclaiming the kingdom does not include the changing of minds or the persuading of people. Does not include the changing of minds or persuading of people. Proclaim means to declare, right? Like a weatherman who says that there's bad weather coming our way or or even a stop sign that says stop. It's not the responsibility of the messenger to make sure that the listener of that forecast or the driver who reads that sign actually uh, prepares and acts accordingly to the message that's being proclaimed. Our job in proclaiming is just that, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ regardless of how it is received. And lastly in this, what, what I think we see is an urgency to the message that needs to be preached. There's no instructions really for lingering. There's no room really to to win over people before proclaiming the good news. There's no spend some time getting to know them, build that relationship, cultivate that friendship, and then once you've earned a moment to speak into their lives, then share the good news with them. I'm not saying that that's a bad approach, but, but what we do see here is a sense of pretty significant urgency to proclaim the gospel. It's, it's an imperative. It's imperative that people hear about this coming kingdom and receive it with repentance. And if they don't, then they move on and they tell other people. This could be hard for us to hear, but this is what we're reading in this account. So rejection is not the only thing that the disciples of Jesus are facing. As we read in chapter 9, we see um, that really a degree at Jesus University means Facing impossible circumstances. So lesson five, you will face impossible circumstances. Impossible circumstances. What do I mean? Well, jump down to verse 10 with me in Luke 9. On the return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had any need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we here are in a desolate place. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all those people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So I'm sure you've heard this before. If you've been in any church context, this is not an uncommon story, but there's just, there's a lot here. We could spend the next four weeks unpacking this single section alone. But when we take a step back, what we see here is an impossible situation, impossible situation that Jesus himself initiates. We see the disciples and Jesus being overwhelmed by a crowd of 5,000 men, which when you include women and children is is probably closer to about 15,000 people, 15,000 people. So Jesus is teaching and he's ministering to all these people all day. um, And at some point, the disciples are like, hey, we should probably send them away so like, you know, they can get some food and they can find a place to sleep. It doesn't take someone with like crazy logistical prowess to to see that, okay, there are thousands of people here, we are in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing to actually eat. We're not talking about a couple dozen people who just crashed your house, so you got to run over to Big Y and get some chips and dip for them, right? We're talking about a jam-packed Mullen Center, right? Capacity, official capacity is 9,493 people, right? So we're talking jam-packed Mullen Center full of people, and the disciples are facing just literally an impossible situation. You cannot logistically, at this time period, there's no Costco, right? They can't go out and just literally buy food for 15,000 people. In another gospel account, we'd see Philip, who I think is the detail-oriented one of the bunch, he's saying, look, if we took 200 days wages, which is about a year's salary, we wouldn't even be able to give them all a snack, right? So logistically, it is not possible to feed these people. But regardless of their skepticism of the situation and in conjunction with their obedience in following Jesus' instructions, um, Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes with food left to spare. More, they had more food afterwards than they began with to spare. The disciples were called to this impossible circumstance. Jesus invited this impossible circumstance. He didn't need to feed those people. Right? They weren't coming to him asking for food. Jesus just says, well, let's, let's feed them. How about we do that? Let's go feed them. For Jesus, the, 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 the impossible circumstance that he's inviting them into is one where the only solution is found in Jesus Christ himself. That's the only solution. This isn't a joke on Jesus' part. He's not teasing them or stumping them just for fun. Um, he, Jesus initiates this impossible situation to show both his compassion for the multitudes of people, but also his powerful ability to act on that compassion. And Jesus never writes a check that can't be cashed. Never. He he, he doesn't have a vision that exceeds his grasp. When he sets out to accomplish something, it will be finished. 
And these are truths that we need to hold on to when we find ourselves in seemingly impossible situations while following Christ. Whether it be family circumstances or problems with health or challenges in our finances or experiencing crippling depression or any other instance where we're called to endure or engage with what feels impossible. Christ is with us, he is in it, and Christ is going to see us through it. And sometimes in a miraculous fashion like we see here, if that's his purpose and his will for it, and sometimes not. But nevertheless, he's going to see us through it. And this is something that as a disciple, you need to understand, know, and remember. Lesson five here is that we'll be faced with impossible circumstances where the only solution is Jesus. Lastly, lesson six. Godly ministry is driven by compassion for people. Godly ministry is driven by compassion for people. We get this unique snapshot into the personality of Jesus in this passage. And I think as, as we talk about our own personalities, and um, I, we often do this as friends, we're like, well, you know, what enneagram are you? Or what personality type are you? Um, we, we, I think we generally divide ourselves up into like extroverts and introverts, right? That's like the most basic way that you can break yourself up. Um, maybe into people who like being around lots of people, and then those of us who prefer smaller groups or maybe one-on-ones with people. Um, Jesus doesn't fit into either of these or any of these. Um, he's comfortable being in groups of 15,000 people, and he's comfortable being in groups of 12 people. He knows how to be in the multitudes, and he also knows how to be alone in a desolate place by himself with the Father. I'm not a licensed psychologist, so you can take what I have to say with a grain of salt, but I think that this might debunk some common conceptions of personality types when we use them to explain our preferences for being around people. What drives Jesus to be around and serve multitudes of people or small groups of people is not his psychological disposition as either an introvert or an extrovert or being an outgoing person. What drove Jesus to want to be around people in any kind of context is his compassion and love for people. That's what enabled him to be in any social situation. Not whether or not he was comfortable or able to be himself in different social situations. So I don't pursue my little three-year-old girl and take her on these little daddy-daughter dates to the pet store um, and spend special time with her that she'll probably never remember uh, because it's comfortable for me or really like it's, it's when I'm in my element. I do it because I'm her daddy and I love her and I'm compelled um, out of my compassion for her to want to spend time with her. So when the multitudes come, Jesus doesn't turn them away, even though his disciples want to, right? They come, and they kind of stick around, and they do the preaching thing, and they heal them. But at some point, the disciples are like, all right, we, we need to eat, too. We need to rest. We've been working all day. He doesn't say, we're closed today, or this is our day off. In John 6, which is a, a, a similar account of the same instance, it says that Jesus had compassion for the crowds. Compassion. As we read here, we see him healing the people. He's gospeling the people, and then he's feeding the people. And Jesus didn't do this out of duty or out of obligation. He did it out of compassion, out of love for those, those multitudes, the multitudes of people. So who are our multitudes? Who are our multitudes? Who are the thousands of people who invade our town and church every single year? over and over. Hmm. 
Who are the lost and wayward people who need the gospel, who are in need of healing, who need to be fed substantial food that is more than just ramen? I'll give you a hint. Most of them aren't here right now. They're, they're home with their families. Look, if you have a heart of compassion, um, you can have a heart of compassion and, and let that drive your ministry um, and, and let that apply anywhere in your life, right? So you can have a heart of compassion in your place of work, in your families, at home, in your neighborhoods and extended families. But I can't help draw the parallel here between the inconveniencing multitudes that invade the disciples' regular routine and the thousands of college students who do the same to us townies here in the Pioneer Valley. And what, I, what I've been able to see at Mercy House that really does concern me and, quite frankly, gets me a little riled up is this distancing of the older generation of believers here at Mercy House from the college students that come through our doors. It's not everyone. There are some of us who do a great job mingling and interacting and, and meeting up with college students, but um, I think that the, the majority, the, the larger tone is that the college students don't really fit conveniently into my world, so they can have their own thing over there. We'll do the college ministry over there. We'll have the adult ministry over here, and that tone is not something that's very well hidden, and if I can discern that, you bet that these college students can sniff it out too. Is that what we want to be as a church? A fragmented body with separate body parts taking care of themselves. And look, I, I get it. Now, it can be overwhelming having so many college students cycling through our church so frequently. They come and they go. Every year we graduate about 50 to 70 college students. They just, they just leave. And new students come in every single year. This is one of the most uncommon church structures ever. So when we go around, we talk to other church planners, we talk about how they operate church, and then we talk about getting an, an influx of 70 to 100 new people every single year. They're like, what? That doesn't happen. People come to church, they trickle in, and then they stick around for a long time. We have it completely backwards. Tons of people come, and tons of people are sent out. So it can be challenging Someone who came to our church for the first time this fall, they were wondering if we were just a glorified college ministry, which I, I found funny. The college students, I get it, they're different. They're less mature. They're flaky. And listen, if you're a college student, uh, just know that I'm just describing myself nine years ago, right? Here's my challenge. Here's my challenge to us as a church, that we be praying for hearts of compassion for the college students who come through our doors, they, um, they make up about two-thirds to three-quarters of our church population. They are lost. They're in need of spiritual moms and dads and big brothers and big sisters. They're hurting, um, and they need healing. They need hot meals with substance. And don't send them away like the disciples wanted to send them away. Embrace their presence and lean into Jesus to serve them while they're here. I'm passionate about this because I believe it's in discipleship relationships that people are going to grow spiritually. It's in crossing that chasm where older believers will get to experience a refreshing jolt of life as they lead younger believers in their journey of faith. We are not just we are not designed to just consume spiritual food, but but it's that spiritual food that's meant to fuel our ministry of proclaiming and healing. So my prayer is that 2019 would be the year that many of us experience new growth and revitalization through discipleship here 
at Mercy House. On both ends of that, both in the discipling, but also being discipled as well. So whether that's in the context of our families, whether that's the context of our workplace, our neighborhoods, or maybe right here at Mercy House where we have multitudes descending on our church every week. The other reason I'm so passionate about this is because I was that lost, hurting, hungry college student. I, I, it was the compassion of older believers who took me under their wing as inconvenient and as time-consuming and resource-draining as that was and poured into me so I could grow and mature as a believer. And for many of you out there, I, I know that this is your story as well. You were once one of the multitudes. You were once one of the multitudes. And the time has come for us Um, who were once lost, once hurting and hungry, to to now share the gospel and bring healing and feed this next generation that is rising up. So lecture one is completed here at Jesus University. You made it through a quarter of the course. Good job. (laughs) To reiterate, the, the, the six lessons that we went through this morning were that you will be sent to proclaim and heal. You will be empowered You will be required to depend on God. You will be rejected. You will face impossible circumstances. And godly ministry is driven by compassion for people. We find ourselves in this place where we are stagnant in our our faith um, and in in our ministry. If we find that we're not mobilizing, I'm willing to bet that it's because of a breakdown in one of these points. We might simply not know what we're actually supposed to be doing, which is fair. Um, We might be drawing from our own wells of, of power and authority. We might be finding security and comfort in the things that we have. We might be afraid of rejection. We might feel the weight of these impossible circumstances. We might be, we might, we might not be motivated by compassion for people. So if one of these or a few of these stick out to you um, and you're convicted by them, I encourage you that uh, this morning as we take communion to just confess them to God and pray that God would change and grow your heart in these areas. Bring them to the altar. Allow him to take them um, and, and then ask that he would mobilize you in your faith. And ultimately, the prerequisite for being a disciple of Jesus and kind of enrolling at Jesus U um, is not that you're able to do this list of things, uh, but by having faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and receiving His gift of grace. So salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. We take communion every single week because it's the ultimate demonstration uh, of compassion for the multitudes uh, and for you and for me. Um, And that, that demonstration of compassion is ultimately demonstrated on the cross. So that breaking of bread and the feeding of the multitudes that we see in Luke chapter 9 um, is really going to be a shadow of the salvation that would be accomplished on the cross when Jesus' body would be broken completely and be given as a free gift for everybody who would need it. If you haven't received this yet, 
um, you're going to have an opportunity to do so this morning. And in a minute, we're going to take communion. Um, and I invite you to pray and, and to receive this gift if you, have, if you haven't yet. That's the step. That's the first step. And then come on down and take communion with us. So if you haven't taken communion with us, uh, we form two lines down the center, and you'll have two people handing you a piece of the bread, and then you'll swing around and grab a cup, and then you'll circle back to your seats. If you've made a decision, if you're making a decision this morning, uh, we'd love to connect with you and pray with you. So there's going to be people in the back. Um, if you just need prayer in general, find somebody with a lanyard that says, I will pray for you. I think that's what they say. Uh, but feel free to come pray for us too, uh, because nobody will turn that down who's standing back there. I'll be back there as well, along with the elders, um, to pray for you, to answer any questions that you might have. Yeah, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word um, that we get to read and receive insight into um, not just the character of who you are, uh, but how you have designed um, the relationship with you to be like. God, thank you that you invite us into this great mission. God, thank you that you empower us, um, that you see us through each of the circumstances that, that you place in our way, God. Um, and thank you that through those, um, as we faithfully follow you through them, grow our understanding of you, our faith, um, and deepens our relationship with you, God. So I pray for those of us here this morning um, who might be challenged by some of these things. And pray that you would grow us as a church and mature us as a church, God, um, to be one that can reach this valley. Um, Lord, pray that you would grow your kingdom here. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.